Big Conversations Little Bar with your hosts Randy Florence and Patrick Evans featuring candid conversations with the Coachella Valley's most interesting and influential people. Pull up a bar stool and enjoy Big Conversations Little Bar. Welcome to Big Conversation Little Bar, where we are coming to you live from Little Bar in Palm Desert, California. My name is Patrick Evans, and I have the pleasure of co-hosting this podcast with one Randy Florence. We've been looking and looking for someone who would do this every week. So far, no one's taken. So, Randy, welcome back. I'm happy. <laughs> I'm happy to fill in every single week until somebody else joins. <laughs> well, in all fairness, it was your idea to do a podcast, so you might as well be here for it. Well, most of the ideas I've had in my life have involved self-abuse. So, <laughs> this works out. Hey, listen, I'm really excited about this show. You know, the National Basketball Association has a logo, and that logo is in the shape of a basketball player named Jerry West, very famous basketball player. If modern music had a logo, I think it might be of our next guest, our Brad Parker. <laughs> Brad has performed all over the world for over 50 years. He's written a number one song in the country space, performed with some of the top pop, rock, and Americana groups in the world. Brad, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me I'm here. really excited to have you here. Good we, to see y'all. We've had the chance to, to get together a couple of times here, and, and the stories have just been phenomenal. So I think it's possible that I might just be able to shut up and no. let you go for the next <laughs> no. 45 minutes. No. no. I've been doing this podcast with him for a long time now, and it's not possible. That's not possible. <laughs> because but he often thinks if Randy would just shut up for the next 45 <laughs> minutes. That is not true. So um, let's go back to the very beginning. Okay. Where did life begin for you, Brad? In Iowa. Iowa City, Iowa. Well, I was born there, but actually the first few years of my life, I lived in my mother's hometown, Fort Madison. In Fort Madison, originally, of course, a fort on the river, while they were taking the land away from the people who owned it, uh, it also became the place where the major rail line from Chicago to L.A., it crossed the river, and uh, which is it's kind of wild because it seems to me that it's the widest, deepest part of the Mississippi is where they decided to cross, and that became on the Iowa side is Fort Madison. On the Illinois side is Nauvoo, Illinois which is the hometown of the Mormon church. That's interesting. <laughs> yes. And uh, a wave hey, across the river. history is right there. Yeah. And, uh, of course, we always heard a lot of stories about why the church left. Uh, one of which my mother liked to tell was Brigham Young didn't like John uh, Smith. And so she, so he had him murdered, took his wives, and left for Salt Lake. Wow. Which, you heard it here first. Which I don't know. It could have been the truth, but... I mean, I don't have 12 wives, at yeah. least not at once. <laughs> <laughs> it is frowned upon. <laughs> so but my wife is a divorce attorney, so if you end up having that issue, we could probably oh no, no. We can help you out. <laughs> no, with Deb, it's either death or death. <laughs> there, and, there's and only one option out. It's the only out. <laughs> and, and at some point, we want to acknowledge that sitting with Brad right now is his wife, Deb Greco, who's a retired uh, veterinarian and is about to become, as Brad described her the other day to me, probably one of the most accomplished ukulele players in the world. Yeah, it wasn't good enough for her to just climb one mountain. Uh, now she's decided to climb another one, among many others. So, Well, we're going to have Deb on here a lot of times. She'll talk to us about you also. She, she's at a disadvantage because we didn't give her a headset and a microphone. Yeah, so. that's a really good point. <laughs> But I'm glad you're here anyway, Deb. Thank you. You are so. responsible for so much amazing music. Thank you. And you've also, I mean, just reading the list of the people with whom you've performed over the years oh. is just an incredible who's who. But it's very eclectic because obviously you occupy space in the country music world, but certainly not exclusive to that. You, you play across genre. So what is, is country your favorite spot, or is there something else that you really enjoy? The blues is my favorite, and blues now reaching into jazz, because the more accomplished I've become, the more I've just studied jazz, because I've had a lot of success in pop, in rock, in country, overseas, in Asia, and overseas in Europe. Um, anything I've done, I succeeded in. And after a while, I would just lose interest in it. 
I mean, and move on to something else. Well, you know, it, it wasn't challenging at that point. Well, you could stick around and say, uh, I'd like to have the most hits in this genre. I'd like to have the most records in this, et cetera, et cetera. But I was never interested in that. To me, music is mysticism. And as a mystic, I want to keep going to the next level, the next place, seeing, you know, who I could work with. That's very interesting. I want to stick with that for a minute. So music as mysticism, where did you adopt that philosophy? How did you, because people approach music in very different ways. Um, I've really first, at first became aware of it when I was in Austin uh, going to school in the late 60s at UT. And there was kind of like an underground railroad between Austin and San Francisco. The same acts would play both places. Uh, they both had a psychedelic ballroom. There was a Fillmore and the Avalon uh, and the Carousel at one time in San Francisco, but it was the Vulcan Gas Company in Austin. <laughs> yeah, interesting name. Uh, and all the bands that were playing The Hate would come and play there. And then they would discover bands there, which then got to go play in The Hate, like Johnny Winter. I saw one of Johnny's first performances at the Vulcan Gas Company, and here's where the mysticism comes in. Besides all the psychedelics and everything, which are, and can either be a party or it can be an existential journey. But we saw all of these artists from Louisiana and Texas, uh, old artists, not just black, mostly black, but also white artists. And when I was listening to these people play, they weren't playing to have a hit record. They weren't playing to go down in history. They were playing because they had to. Big Mama Thornton, I mean, if you hear, go listen to her version of the blues, it's like, well, wait a minute, didn't she invent rock and roll? But because she's not famous, unless you're someone like me, you never got to hear her. And I did. And Big Joe Williams, Freddie McDowell, Jimmy Reed, uh, all of these artists would come through. And I didn't know it at the time, but we were just in New Orleans, and I realized now I was picking up on the voodoo. Hmm. And the voodoo, which is greatly misunderstood by most people, is not an evil force. It is a force. It can be used either way. Yeah, and it's like music. Music is, a, to me, I see it as a being which expresses itself through many people. And I'm just one of those people because I opened the channel and I never turned it off, which got me in trouble with the corporate guys because they were like, oh, no, you did that one thing. Can you do it again? I'm like, no, it's not coming through. Mm. Uh, no, I don't think so. And this was very frustrating because they want to run it like a factory. Right. And if you don't get into the factory mode, then, okay, you're out of here. Well, there's a formula. Yeah. And they like, they like artists to apply that formula to their hits so they can keep churning them out. And You know, if, if we're... I, I, told my son who's now going into the business i think you got to go through that door if you want to get to where i am an independent artist who's successful got the credits got the money to pay the rent and i get to do what i want but when i went to san francisco from austin because i kept hearing all this san francisco stuff and the posters and everything there's where the mysticism really hit because unlike the way it's portrayed now the whole hippie trip in the bay area when i say the hate i mean the whole bay area it's the East Bay, it's the peninsula with San Francisco and Marin. We were in the, all those places. And the commune I was in had houses in all those places. And we ran natural food restaurants in all of those places. Probably wow. the first ones in America. And that's well, how, how did you get involved with the commune? Uh, I was homeless with my brother when we arrived in January of 1970. And then we first we went over to Haight-Ashbury and then we went over to Berkeley. Uh, because there was a bookstore we wanted to go see or something. And we walked into this restaurant. We didn't know it was run by a commune. And they had a big space in the back. And we asked one of the guys who was working, could we play there? And he goes, do you play rock and roll? And we said, yeah. So the gal in the back who I came to know later, she was like, no, no, no way. And he goes, yeah, yeah, come on, let's go do it. So we went in the back and played. And <clears throat> she and a few others said they can't stay here. And he went, okay, I'll go. He'll bring him over to the house in San Francisco. And we landed at uh, Oak and Lion, right on the panhandle in Golden Gate Park. Wow. Oh, yeah. And that was quite a scene then, wasn't it? Yeah, and we lived there for a while, and then we commuted to Berkeley to work in that restaurant. And pretty soon, the guy who organized the commune, he wasn't the leader, he just he organized it. And he's connected to what's going on out here, too. Uh, 
he said, well, look, you could play music here on a regular basis at night, and this would draw people in, customers for our dinner hour, and so we started doing that. But in that block in Berkeley, it's called the Book Block, and there, was, there were four major bookstores in one block. There was Cody's, run by old man Cody, and there was uh, Shakespeare's, and then there was Moe's. And Moe actually sat in the back with his cigar the whole time, chomping it. But he had all the great books from New York. Shakespeare had all the classics and stuff from Europe. And Cody's had all the American West. Uh, really obscure stuff, like Wallace Stegner, who most people haven't read. But it's, I think, the greatest author of the West that there is. And in the middle of them was Shambhala. A little store like a reading library. You could buy a book, but you could sit down all day long and read all the books in the bookstore. They were all Eastern mysticism. And this is where I was first introduced to Zen and all of the Asian pursuits of mysticism, which we would think of, <coughs> excuse me, as religion, but to them it's not religion. It's more perception of what's going on. And so that led to, and this is 1970, this informed all of my work ever since. You wow. were able to apply that. The, the the kind of sense of mysticism to your pursuit of music. Yes. And it was encouraged because the hate was about enlightenment. It was about personal journey to enlightenment and awareness. That's why Earth Day, uh, the first Center for Independent Living, all of these things originated in the hate because that's what we were after. Equ you talk about equality and uh, opportunity and those kinds of things. It was, it was way beyond that. It wasn't musicians. It was a community. Yeah. Yeah. The full thing. Musicians were considered part of it. But if you were to meet a member of the airplane or Quicksilver or whatever, they were just another person in the community. They weren't special. And matter of fact, the acid trip, the great acid trip that uh, Jerry Garcia talked about a lot. Yeah. That whole thing was the band will drop acid, the audience will drop acid, and all of us together will do this. And that became kind of the thing there. And we did it many times. Really? Man, my band with my brothers, uh, we came out three of us, and then one of us left to be a painter, and he did really well. We'll talk about that more later. But we were called the Sons of Light. And, oh, yeah. And uh, we, had, we had two songs. First one lasted an <laughs> were hour. Were they original? They were completely original. Okay. I'll tell you how original they were, <laughs> Randy. The first one was in A, and the second one was in E. And it would be one, two, three, four, boom. And we'd go into it and play for an hour, an hour and a half. And every time it was made up, on the fly. So... Uh, <laughs> It was so open and free, and with everybody's really high. Had you been licking the, the stamps at that point? Uh, it, you know, <laughs> we really didn't even need the drugs. No. It was the freedom to do it and not have anybody say, oh, no, you can't do that. This is before I got in the industry. Because in the industry, you really need to have, there's a lot of discipline that goes into to writing number one hits and, and the kinds of things that you were doing in the industry. So how did you go from doing an hour and a half long song to applying the kind of discipline you need to, to do commercial music production? Well, I'll tie the whole loop together. We're playing one night doing this only A and only E. And we, and we noticed, this is the East Bay. And one day they went, hey, I just learned C. No, I might even get no C was for folk point. singers. That wasn't for psychedelic. You're right. Peter, Paul, and Mary, that was that. Right. C is the folk singer. Got it. Uh, like F. That's and good nobody to writes We made an F. fun of the people who played C. No, I started in folk music, so that was all cool. Who writes an F? Nobody? So... <laughs> We're, one night we noticed that uh, a lot of cats were coming from Oakland to hear us play. And I recognized a couple of them this one night, and I just had to go over to them and talk to them after we were done. And I said, uh, so who are, and all of a sudden they introduced themselves. It was uh, Doc Ellis and John Handy, and two famous jazz musicians uh, who lived in Oakland. And then I'm like, well, why are you guys here listening to us? <laughs> and they told me, it's because you guys are doing what we want to do. Wow. And that's the, if you go around the complete arc of music, 
is we were doing what could be called now free rock. And all the psychedelic bands did that for some moment of time. The Dead did it more than most, but we did it all the way. And then over here is free jazz. Free jazz and free rock are united by the arc of how do I become a songwriter? And as you become a songwriter and a performer doing what people would call legitimate songs, you get to the end of that road where you've written the most complicated songs you can think of, and then you ask yourself, well, what would be the next step? And how the jazz guys discovered, and it was a big argument between Miles Davis and Charlie Mingus and Pharaoh Sanders and all those guys, Coltrane. What if we did free jazz? And Ornette Coleman would say, okay, I'm just going to count one, two, three, four. Boom, we're all going to go. And he even did an album, I think it's called America, where that's what it is. It's one take in a studio, go. Miles was against it. He didn't really kind of, because he wanted to do like what they call a head and then the body and then the tail. He wanted to do a theme and then an exposition and then a summation, just like an arc. So we, were, we started where everybody wanted to end. And it was kind of in reverse because of the mysticism. And as we went along, we started playing. We, the band name changed and whatnot. But we went to when we finally came up with, what if we did Roots music? Because we didn't want to do punk uh, punk was because you were kind of known as punk for a while. Weren't oh, you? we were considered a punk yeah. band, and we were included in the whole punk genre because of the tempo we played right, at. Right, this fierce tempo. But what we were playing was original interpretations of old blues. Hmm. We took old blues roots music and we just played it hyper. And it was so part of our exploration was again the voodoo. The voodoo was in the music we were playing. And we didn't even know it. Mm. And from the river, we were, well, my brothers and I were all born on the Mississippi River. So this whole thing was informing us. And by the time that band, uh, we broke up, everybody wanted to do something different. I ended up in Nashville. And I found out that all the songwriting I've been doing, I used to come to L.A. with a cassette tape and go from publisher to publisher trying to sell songs. And, of course, they always said, no, 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 no. Well, later on, it was yes, 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 yes. But when I got to Nashville, I found out I was a good writer. And I found out at the Bluebird. The Bluebird was like, I don't know, like being in the gaslight in New York back in the day. It was only songwriters. It was, uh, I say the Bluebird was about twice as big as this yeah. place. And we would all sit around and entertain each other, playing the songs we'd written that nobody would record. Wow. And this was a, uh, it was a very unusual group of people. What was the first song you sold? Hmm. When did you get that first yes? It would have to have been in Nashville. I'm trying to remember. It was probably, no, it was some independent stuff. Uh, a song I wrote with Bill Miller, this Native American artist. I'm sorry. And it was, it's called Forever Ride. So, okay, that was, Bill was, it was okay with that. Uh, there were some other co-writes, other independent artists. And then finally, I got the number one. Almost right out of the gate. Called Nobody's Going to Rain on Our Parade. 1996. Kathy Matea. Kathy Matea. Yeah. And it was like, boom. Uh, once you once you hit the top in a scene like that, everything changes. And did everybody start reaching out asking you to write a song for them at that point? It, it did. It, yeah. it just it went crazy. And it wasn't just in country. All of a sudden, I was writing pop hits and heavy metal and all of these other genres because I can do that. I can go from one to the next. That's a really unusual skill because I think a lot of people find their niche and kind of dig into it. So how do you... That's, that takes a lot of mental exercise, I would think, to I be able to go from one to the other to the other. I guess it does, but... Not for you. No, I, I see it like mathematics. Um, all songwriting to me can be explained through mathematics, from the free jazz or free rock end of it to the completely constrained um, opera. Right? The whole thing is mathematics to me. That's yeah. how I see it. I've heard that about music... Obviously, you read music. I do. Yeah. But I can't sight read. In other words, I can't put a chart down and, and just play it. My son can do that. Thank God for all the lessons I got him. <laughs> <laughs> he can also teach it. But I've noticed in him, that's his frame now. He started with reading. I started with listening. 
And so for me, it's, it's listening. So if I go to see an artist, doesn't matter what genre they're in, and I've done it all over the world, I listen to a few of their songs with them and say, okay, what do you like about this and where were you doing there? Oh, okay, well then, all right, try this idea. And we start from there. Uh, when I was writing country and having hits, I ended up producing hits, playing on hits. I did the whole Nashville thing. I wrote a song, uh, several songs with a band called Hurricane from L.A., a heavy right. metal band. And all of a sudden, the first song next to you got on Headbangers Ball. And oh, my man. daughter was just had a crush on the lead singer. And all of a sudden, I'm on Headbangers Ball, and she goes, oh, wow, Dad, you really are a musician. <laughs> all of a sudden, you're you, legitimate. You really are a songwriter. Because Nashville did not impress her. As a matter of fact, Nobody's Gonna Read in Our Parade was written for her. Well, I mean, to me, like... I Seriously? Because she wanted to get out in Nashville. Wow. She wanted to go see uh, Tracy, or the guy from uh, Hurricane. <laughs> I mean, performing with Hurricane and then, like, Dan Fogelberg. I, I can't think of polar opposites <laughs> more than that. Those two names. I mean, they're really. I well, I understand it, and I'll tell you what uh, unites them. First thing for for Dan and for me was the blues. I'm on tour. I was in my ex-wife's act, the opening act, and after a while, I mean, it's a nine-month tour around America. We hit everything, from three thousand seaters to sixty thousand. He was. It was hit peaking for Dan. He really was bored to death. The whole thing just left him cold. <laughs> really? Yeah. So in between my set and his, we'd sit in the back and jam the blues. And then we started talking about Iowa and Illinois and, we, you know, stuff like Made Right. If you did, haven't lived in Iowa and Illinois back in the day, you wouldn't know what a Made Right was. But it's called in the Midwest a loose meat sandwich. <laughs> You gotta call it something other loose, than loose meat. Loose meat sandwich, okay? Uh, they take like hamburger, chop it all up, grind it all up, and then do it on the grill, and then put it on a hamburger bun with pickle and onion. And this is a loose meat sandwich. And usually, a place that sells it, like the Made Right Shop, also sold grilled tenderloins. This is very Midwestern. So we were bonding on the old days in the Midwest. And Sounds delicious. <laughs> it does sound good. Sounds good. I still like it. <laughs> Not good for me, but I like it. And the blues. So much so that the studio musicians he had on tour with him were like, what are you doing hanging out with this guy? Because we were talking about the blues and the river and the whole. So you guys had a connection that was totally outside of the music you were, he was playing at the time. Totally outside. And every time I saw him afterwards at BMI Awards or whatever, it was like, hey, we'd immediately go over to the other guy and we'd start talking. And people would go, how does he know him? And why does he know him? And what's going on? Because, you know, those things are well, always there. You bond through loose meat. That's a permanent thing. We did. Made right sandwiches. <laughs> Once you've bonded through loose Once meat. Once you've bonded through loose meat, where but, do you go? But Hurricane was a blues, too. Oh, yeah? They wanted to know, how do I write a heavy metal song with the blues? Because Led Zeppelin was kind of going, all right, if you can take old blues and make it into heavy metal. And I showed them how. Because if you know the riffs, you can do it. I mean, to me, it's all math. <laughs> now, when did you first pick up an instrument and start playing? Yeah. I was eight years old. I started playing the clarinet because my older brother decided he didn't want to play the clarinet anymore. He wanted to play the trumpet, which quickly moved to they're, the saxophone. Well, they're both in B-flat, trumpet and clarinet, so exactly. that works. And so after a while in the clarinet, I really got into folk music, and I got my first guitar, a Silvertone acoustic. We, we just saw one in a museum the other day. Wow. And my second was a Gene Autry uh, guitar, which my father busted over one of my brother's back on one wild <laughs> night of misbehavior. Whoa. <laughs> I want to hear that oh, story. I, uh -huh. I think we got a screen right, uh, screenplay going here. We do. <laughs> and then I got... Somehow I saved money. I don't know my uncle gave me money, and I bought my first legitimate guitar, which I still have. It's a called a Goya, twelve string. It was made in Sweden, and uh, I still have it. It was a great guitar because you know the whole folk music thing. All of a sudden, Woody Bu Woody Guthrie, and then Bob Dylan, and then we're like, okay, I got to do some of this, but. Then the Beatles and the Beach Boys, and that was over with. And did yeah. did did you go? electric about the same time that Dylan did? Um, I, had a, I had a pause. I had a delay. Because I broke my left arm most, twice before this and then a third time, right around 15. And uh, the last time was really serious. 
And so the doctor, the Dallas Cowboys bone doctor who put it back together, he said, okay, this last cast is going to be six months. And your mom told me you play guitar. So the exercise I want you to do the whole time you're in the cast is play guitar. And my position, hand position, everything comes from that whole incident. From being in a cast. How did you break your arm that time? Let's see. The first time was falling out of a tree. The <laughs> second time was fighting with one of my brothers. The third time was in a football game. Okay. Good. So your, your dad didn't hit you with a guitar. No, so. no. He was out of the picture by then as far as all of that went. I, I did it all on my own. I broke myself up. Was there ever a plan B for you, Brad? Lawyer. Other than music? Lawyer. Yeah. I went to college to be a lawyer. But uh, first semester. And that was in Austin? Yeah, in 68. In the first semester, I got uh, number six in the first Vietnam draft. Mm. And uh, I remember the night when they called the numbers and all my friends and I were in the dorm room. And when I got six, they all backed away from me. Wow. Because everybody knew I was going to go to Vietnam. And I was like, oh, into the world. Wow, how fast that showed up. By the time got to 69, uh, my older brother who was in college at Austin College in Sherman, our, my dad said, well, I'm not going to pay for college anymore because you guys are hippies. So we worked full-time jobs, but in those days, the hours you had to take to stay out of the draft were really big. I'm working full-time, working the hours. And finally, my brother said to me, look, if you're going to die pretty soon, why don't we go to Haight-Ashbury and play rock and roll? <laughs> Let's finish it up right. Yeah, and I went, yeah, that sounds like the way to go. <laughs> and so we did. And while I was there, I got called up twice and uh, went to the infamous uh, Oakland Induction Center. And the first time, I told him I'm a conscientious objector. I'm like Muhammad Ali or Joan Baez's husband, David Harris. Yeah. I come from a military family going back before the Revolutionary War, but you can put me in jail. You can put me in the brig for the whole two years. I'm not going to go to Vietnam. I don't know those people. They don't know me. I have no reason to kill them. And they were like, hmm, really? And nine months later, they came back and said, well, we've decided you're going to go kill them anyway. Hmm. And my, my, by this point, my mother, who was really apoplectic about this event, she got me a letter from the guy who fixed my arm, Dr. Ware, because even though he was the most famous bone doctor in Texas, he sent his son to Vietnam, and his son had died there. Oh, wow. So she said, can you help save my son? And he said, sure. He wrote a letter that said if I went to boot camp, the arm would be broken again, and no one could put it back together. So it was 4 ep. Nope. No, no, no. At the very end, you get two or three hundred guys in their underwear walking through this building being checked out. And when you get to the end, it says, anyone have any reason at all that you think you shouldn't get on that bus? Because when you walked out of the induction center, you didn't go home. You went to the war. Yeah. So I said, I got a letter. And they said, okay, we'll send it and walk in there for the doctor. The doctor looks at it. He looks at me. He says, I'll tell you what. I'm not going to give you a 4F. Because when enough of those boys die, we're going to come back and get you. I'm going to give you a one Y. And a one Y meant you were only deferred for that one time around at the induction center. You were liable for being called up for the entire war. And I spent the entire war waiting to get that call until the day it ended. And it never came. Never came. But that doctor, I mean, he was, he was pretty specific. Wow. We're going to come and get you. And it was kind of like he was threatening me. But the overall, what was left of those two incidents is I wrote a song called The Ones Who Didn't Come Home. I was going to ask that. Because twice I stood on the sidewalk outside and watched all those boys get on those buses. Two or three hundred each time. And I always thought, what happened to them? I knew what happened to me. I paid the price. I willingly paid the price. My father... My grandfather, all my uncles, mom's side, my dad's side, all served in the military. But I felt like the best thing I could do in their spirit was not serve in this war. And I watched all the boys who hadn't thought that through or had no choice, and they went to the war. And I wrote this song, and Deb showed me the other day. It is the most popular song off of my album, Days of Poetry, played all over the world. And I really feel great about that because it's an honor to them. I see them at night sometimes. Because mm. being a mystic, I'm, I'm tuned into all the spirits. I know that may sound weird or corny. Nope. 
But I feel them. I feel their presence saying, we didn't get a chance to be who we wanted to be. We, want, we need you to be who you wanted to be. And that's... Wow. How, how much of that um, belief in mysticism as a lifestyle uh, brought you here to this valley? You and I have talked a lot about Joshua Tree and the feeling in this valley that's a little bit different than a lot of geographies. The first time I came here for anything was when I was in Johnny Rivers' band, and he said, uh, I got a guy that used to play in my band who's out there in Palm Springs. I think you should meet him. We'll go see him. He's playing at the Blue Guitar. His name is Cal David. Cal David. One and of the great blues players of all time. I went, to, I went I'm in Johnny's band. I mean, it, it was a real privilege. There was James Burton, there was Cal, and there was me. And uh, so, yeah, let's go meet Cal. And that's the first time I came. And I, I thought, wow, this looks like Albuquerque. The desert and the mountains, it all reminded me. But then Deb and I got together, and she has a horse on the high desert. So this is back like 2015, 2016. We, we started coming out here so she could ride her horse, a really cool horse, way up in Joshua Tree. Uh, and when we were up here, we started dropping in at this uh, roadhouse, this bar called Pappy and Harriet's. Oh, yeah. And we noticed that Pappy's had an open mic night. And so then when we come up here, I started playing open mic. And it was going well. I liked it. And then she started playing with me, playing ukulele. And then pretty soon we were like, why are we living in Hollywood when our life is really out there on the desert? And she had a really cool house in Palm Springs, uh, one of the original William Chrysler mid-century moderns. Wow. And it was kind of beat up, but I bought her uh, girlfriend partner out of the house. We moved there. We got married out here at Frank Sinatra house. <laughs> and uh, we realized over time that what drew us to the desert was this mysticism. It, it, and we it's were, palpable, isn't it? Yeah. You can yeah. feel it in places where it is. Like, it's like a vortex yeah. of energy. There's no question that people connect here in the desert with something, you know, Bigger. much larger than ourselves. Much. And it is a, it's a very magical place. When I moved here 20-plus years ago, I thought maybe I'd work out here for a couple of years. But then the desert doesn't just, you don't just fall in love with the desert. It gets into your blood. But you'll notice, like in our neighborhood now, there's all of these people coming out and trying to have just a big party. And they seem out of place to me here. It's kind of like going back to the old hate. Um... Uh, Younger people today think the hate was a big party. We'll all get stoned. We'll have a drum circle. We'll wear clothes that you know are really revealing so we can see each other. And then we'll all do what we used to call idiot dancing. Now they call it ecstatic dancing. Uh, no kidding. Uh, when I worked for Bill Graham, this is where Skip and I really bonded because I worked for Bill for many years as a stagehand, stage manager. Uh, we always... Uh, pinned off the back of the Fillmore or the Winterland especially especially when the dead was playing because there were all these people who just got really high and started doing this thing with their the hands ecstatic dancing yes we'll ecstatic say. dancing but <laughs> the, uh, the misnomer we used back in the day was idiot dancing <laughs> because we didn't think they had any purpose but then I would always say yeah but it's the Grateful Dead <laughs> so they don't have any purpose either so it all kind of works together and they, their dad wouldn't have been uh, unhappy with that description either. Because, again, the, the idea of if you could play freely and do it is, is the highest. Oh, i got to tell you a story about that. I saw a video where Wayne Shorter, he calls up Miles because he's going to be playing with him. He's, he's in his band at the time. He says, hi, Miles. So what are we going to play tonight? He says, have you ever played the music that's not there? He goes, yeah, but, uh, okay, so, you know, what are we going to... He said, the music, it's not there, Wayne. You ever played that? He goes, well, no, but, uh, you know, so what are we going to do? Said, We're going to play the music, it's not there. <laughs> he says, then Miles hangs up. Click. <laughs> Wayne shows up. He didn't at the time get it, what Miles was talking about. The music is not there is the silence. Yeah. The silence is where... In between the notes. Yeah, Winton Marsalis explained it because Miles told him many years later. The job of the musician is to recognize that the people in the audience are players too. Everybody's in the band. 
And if you don't leave them any space, the music that's not there, then their mind won't make up what goes in that place. So the music that's not there is what you don't play and they play in their mind. And so as a musician, you want to leave that. My son sent me a tape the other day of some really fabulous riffing he was doing. of just like three minutes of solid wow. And I went, I really admire the way you, you took every empty space out of that piece. And <laughs> covered the whole thing up. Didn't give us a chance to think about I, what you were doing. I had no idea what I was really saying to him, but he came back. He said, oh, I could have left the whole thing. And I do it th- I'll do that the next time. And the point I would make to him is, if you, do, if you cover it all up, that's just for you. And you can do that all day long in your room. But when you're in front of people, you should leave space so that they can get into the conversation. Wow. I absolutely adore what you just said. And I've never heard a musician say it. Certainly not that succinctly. And I've interviewed a lot of people who play music. That is, that's a really fascinating concept. Because guess- the audience buy-in is so important, but thinking them as, uh, as part of that experience where they're participating with you is... is it's a pretty mind-blowing way to, to explain it. I've been really ill over the last three years. And a lot of serious things. I almost died a couple of times. Thank God my wife's a doctor who saved my life both times. But the overwhelming thing for me music is I had to get back on the stage. Because for me, the conversation... I put out a lot of records. My name is on hundreds of records hundreds. around the world. But in one way or another. But the performance is the thing so when to get through the illnesses all i could think of is i got to learn to walk again so i can stand on a stage and play music with people it's like a transfusion for you huh well it's also the people you play with deb is she's my favorite player ever i mean here she is in her second big career uh and what she does because she's playing ukulele is it leaves me space so we can have a conversation and the, the reason it's so hard to listen to jazz is because they're all talking to each other. And you have to figure out how you get into that conversation with them. And once you do, it's, it's the most evolved music I've ever heard. But it is hard for a lot of people, in, hard to listen in, to. including myself, to get into that conversation. It's hard to listen to. And that's why Miles is the door in. Because unlike John Coltrane and... Cannonball Alley and all the great musicians that have played with him. Somehow, I mean, here's a guy like me. He started out in dance bands and orchestras. And then he went to smaller bands. And then he finally went, I got to have my own thing. And then Kind of Blue happened. And Kind of Blue, he realized I could do the opening riff. Da, 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 da. And then I can go. That, that. Now, all that space is drawing people in. What the hell is he going to do next? And then finally get to... Which is all phrasing off of those original. And then at the end... And once I understood how he was talking, I could get into it. So when I heard Coltrane just playing the middle part, or Cannonball Adderley, or any of the other great musicians, I got I got that there was a piece that they weren't playing for me. But I knew how to understand the middle part because I could pick out where it was coming from, what notes were important and what weren't. Now, when you were doing the open mics up at Pappy and Harriet's, yeah. what were you playing? Uh, I'd play some of my originals. Uh, I always was reluctant to play my hit records because Why? I didn't want people to think of me that way. I wanted them to hear the stuff that they'd never heard from me. And I wanted to do interpretations of other great artists. And the thing I ended up playing most of the time was uh, Bo Diddley. Whom you played with. Yes. I opened for Bo Bo said something to you (laughs) the first time that you played with him. Uh, Said something to your band. Well, he actually was saying it to me, but in the band in effect, but now I realize he was saying it to me personally. Um... We got done playing, and what a great privilege to open for Bo Diddley. Uh, and out of the dark, suddenly he appeared, and Lady Bo was standing behind him, and he grabbed my hand, and he said, Man, I don't know what it is, 
but whatever it is, you got it. Ah. And he paused, <laughs> and he said, now don't lose it. Don't lose it. And this, to me, was like the Dharma transmission. Bo Diddley. Bo Diddley. I mean, he's probably people. said that to three people in his entire life. I don't if. know. Andy, I, <laughs> do, I don't know, but I knew what it meant when he said it. And to further enhance that is it was only a few months later uh, we got the invite to open for Van Morrison in uh, this theater, the Phoenix Theater in Petaluma, and he found out that we'd recorded Mystic Eyes. Mm. And at the time, Van was on a real tear about it. He hated them. He didn't want anybody to do Gloria. Didn't want to ever hear it again. Was never going to play it. And if you did, you were his enemy. And so he said, no, bounce those guys. They're off the bill. So this was my band. No, no, I, can I say that? No BS. Yeah. Well, the real name was... If no you bullshit. Could, yeah. You can say it. <laughs> but nobody would put that on a marquee. Right. right. So it became No BS, which then was squeezed together and became The Knobs. <laughs> so The Knobs... <laughs> Right. That's how I love that because my wife kept saying the knobs. I go, no, it's no BS. Yeah. <laughs> so we got to offer the guy calls up real sorry, but you can open up for canned heat. And we're ecstatic. So, oh, God, we go canned heat. So we go to play with canned heat. We get done, and Bob Height and the guitar player, Henry Vestine, burst into the dressing room. And he's got his hands out, and he goes, I can't believe it. You guys really know how to boogie. I thought it was so evident. He was just ranting about how we were the spirit of the boogie. And if you, I'm sure you'll interview Billy Gibbons at some point or another because he's hanging out Hope so. around here like I am. He would tell you the same thing. Can he came storming through Texas at the Texas Pop Festival in 69 playing a version of John Lee Hooker none of us had ever heard. And that's what Billy heard too? Sure. Yeah. His whole career was made off of that riff. Wow. Okay, that stutter that's in there, mm-hmm. it's natural to Texas blues musicians. But here comes Can Heat out of L.A., and they're playing the stutter loud and distorted. And that, I mean, it was like, and so there they are in our dressing room, you guys, blah, 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 blah. and I thought, man, it's like the universe is sending me a message. How old were you then? Uh, 31. Wow. And uh, I got the message. You got it. I understood it. And um, my brothers understood it too, but they didn't seem to feel as much of a calling for it as I did. I, uh, as my kids would tell you, I've led a very dangerous life. <laughs> I've just, whenever I felt like, oh, I got to go play this, I got to go here, I got to do that, I just went and did it. I moved to Hong Kong to make records in Asia back in the 90s because guy offered me a deal and I was fascinated by the instruments and the singers and the, the whole thing. And then when my kids started barking at me, I came back. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of music did you listen to growing up? What were some of your first impressions well, that's kind of interesting. I mean, there was a lot of country radio in the Midwest in those days. So we heard, but it used to be country and Western. Right, yeah. Country, Western music, yes. Country because, and Western music. Yeah, it was the music of poor people in the West and poor people in the East. It was hillbilly music. And poor people in the South. Right? Yeah. Well, th- they were both hillbillies and cowboys influenced by the South, but you couldn't talk about it. You couldn't say that's where I got that because we were in a racist moment. And where I live, especially in Texas, it was peaking. I mean, I remember colored only, white only, restrooms, water fountains. You grew up through that. Yeah, so I I was experiencing that. But you're right. The South was actually feeding both with the blues. Because you can hear Merle Travis play the blues. You can hear Johnny Cash play the blues. You could hear Willie play the blues, right? Uh but it was coming through these poor people. And I heard you could hear that on the radio in small towns because they would play that kind of stuff. But the other thing I heard was because my mother's family's from Lebanon. So they would sit around and play these records from the Middle East. And those records had a different rhythm and a different melody. So very different. Which you could mostly hear in things like Dick Dale. Dick Dale's family's also from the Middle East. And you hear in his solos which influenced all the surf guitar players. That That's like an oud, which I got to use on a record in Asia once. And then the guy, crazy. guy hands to me says, try and play it. And I went, okay. 
I don't know where you have it back. So the genesis for surf music came from the Middle Middle East. Yeah, you can hear it. That's unbelievable. You can hear it. And in the doors, the doors, uh, I played with John Densmore once. We had a great time. And uh, he loved my song Black Blood that's on that album, Days of Poetry. And there's Great a, album, there's, by the way. Thank you so much. Is that your favorite album? I would say so. I mean, it's, hard to p- it's hard to pick a favorite child, I know. Well, actually, my favorite is, is the new one, as I've just been reminded by the management. <laughs> <laughs> she produced it. But this is a concept. This is the uh-huh. album cover. You guys can see it. Your listeners can't. This album comes out next week. Oh, the knobs. And you've got to see Deb's car at some point. But that picture is taken at the Salton Sea. It's an old burned-out gas station that has a bunch of graffiti oh, on I the wall. Oh, I know exactly where that is. So Deb had an idea, well, if we take her car, which represents teen spirit, because that's where the album starts, it's all rock and roll. And, well, the is first song's called Hey, Hey, Hey. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, then it goes to Hey, Kid. And as it progresses, though, it gets to the dark part. And the dark part's represented by the wall. The end fate of everything in the desert. The desert always wins, swallows everything up. It always wins. So, where we grew up in Albuquerque as kids, even though we didn't know it at the time because our father wasn't allowed to tell us, and he told us in the 80s, 30 years after it happened, that's where they made all the bombs. That's where they stored all the bombs. The entire nuclear industry was run out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Wow. And... His, and that's what your dad was involved in? He was the controller at this company uh, called ACF, American Car and Foundry from St. Louis. And they knew metallurgy better than anyone. So they were they got the job to make what they call the skins. That's the metal outside of a missile or a mm-hmm. bomb. Because when you put a radioactive core in some metal like that, the metal changes. And it starts creating stalactites or stalagmites, which are headed toward the core. If they pierce the core, boom. So their whole job was to maintain these outsides. And now my brothers and I, because no solution, the second to last song is called Below the Bomb. And you'll see on the back cover uh, what this front cover represents, which is the end of the world. So we go from teen spirit to the end of the world. Wow. And the last song is the one Van Morrison hated that we recorded called Mystic Eyes. It's a Howlin' Wolf kind of riff about going down to the graveyard and seeing in the graveyard these mystic eyes looking back at you. So everything I've talked about so far, the mystic, the arc, the whole thing, it's on this record. It's rolled into this. And Deb and I, we were looking through all my stuff, uh, and she found some reel-to-reel tapes uh, of songs that we'd recorded, knobs back in the 80s that we never released. But nobody works in reel-to-reel anymore. I couldn't find any place to go get a reel-to-reel tape and remix. And then she found these cassette tapes that had to finish two tracks of all of those. And the live album we came out with last year and this album, which is all in the studio, were from cassette tapes. When was the original material recorded? Um, 80 to 83. Wow. Wow. And the live album. So it's really archival stuff that you're you're digging into. And absolutely, absolutely. It's a it's. That's a, so cool. And I'm Deb. Was this your idea? You're nodding. Was it like you were just found this stuff? Oh, this is all her idea. She's truly the executive producer. Wait, talk right into here. I met them when I was in a vet student at Davis. I heard them in a bar, and that's how we met. And then we were separated for thirty years. And I said, "You got to bring back that music." And I found the tapes, and I said, why don't we produce a, an album? It's recorded at a bar in Davis, a brewery in Davis. That's awesome. <laughs> and that's the album from last year, 1981 Live. Oh, that's fantastic. And then we decided to do this one, and now we've noticed a lot of artists are now doing retrospective albums because the LP's taken off, so they're doing, here's all the takes we didn't put on the record. Right. Here's a remaster of something. Vinyl's bringing everything back. Uh, vinyl is... Yeah. <coughs> Vinyl is the, the, outside of streaming, it's, it's the largest physical medium again. Yeah. Which is remarkable. So that's why we're printing this as both a LP, a CD, and a USB, which is a new innovation. You get a thumb drive, you get all the music on it, and all the photos, reviews, and everything else you want. <laughs> See, and that's the thing, I, I, I think that's great, because I love streaming, it's convenient, you can play everything off your phone, and, and, and the quality has gotten very good, but... 
you don't own the music. So if you have a, if you have a USB drive, then you, then at least you have this physical thing that you know. And I loved as a kid going to the record store, and then the CD. I, you know, CDs were just coming in when I was a kid, and I, I still probably have I have probably three thousand CDs. <laughs> I'd like to have that money back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, my baseball cards. Phys- physical product is is making a big comeback because streaming is a much lower grade of audio file yes. quality. It you took people a, a while to realize that I think. And uh, as an artist, uh, we get paid a hundredth to a thousandth of what we got on a radio airplay. So oh, it's you, a fraction. You yeah. got a radio airplay. You got two cents every time your song was played on the radio, mm. and you could make a living with that if you were having hits. Uh, and even as an independent, you could make some change. But now you're getting .0002 or .00002 on every stream. Plus, people are using your music on their videos. There's all kinds of uses that are violating copyright. Which you can't recoup. You can't. It's, it's no. so impossible to track. No. You know, we've, um, we say this often, but I, I really mean it this time. <laughs> Brad, we're not even close to getting through all the notes that I had that I wanted to talk to you about. <laughs> Brad's recorded has written songs that were recorded by Cher, Edgar Winter, Carla Barnoff, Katie Oslin, which is one of my biggest crushes of my life. <laughs> and I can't wait for us to talk a little bit more about those opportunities and those relationships that you develop. But when does this album drop? This album drops as a CD next week. The LP comes out in July and the USB somewhere in between the two. Can't well, wait. Brad, we can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. It's fascinating and, and it's just such a it's a thrill to be able to hear these stories well, thank firsthand. You. Thank you for having me. It's always nice to be able to talk about the stuff that people out there don't really know goes into what we do. And we're going to mic up Deb next time too because she's, she's been an active part of this podcast even though people didn't get to hear her very <laughs> well, much. It, at some point in the future she's going to be the preeminent ukulele player in the world so we need to have her on the show. Well, and she could talk about how vibrations or music affect animals. Yes. This is like a new thing that she's been investigating as a veterinarian. Well, she and I are going to be chatting i have two senior dachshunds and i would i value a good veterinarian brad thank you so much thank a you, pleasure randy john and i want to just say on behalf of brad and randy florence my your great side co-host kick? i would never use that term i'm using it when you're can. sitting next to me uh but in the media i use that term frequently and of course our engineer producer i'm the shirley to your laverne okay <laughs> i thought you're really more squiggy but but that's, that's a whole we'll we'll deal with that like john mcmullen who makes sure that this not only gets recorded but gets placed on platforms so that you all can hear it we certainly hope that you will uh, continue to enjoy our future episodes of Big Conversation Little Bar. Thanks for listening to Big Conversation's Little Bar. Join Randy and Patrick next time as we keep the conversation going right here on Big Conversation's Little Bar. Little Bar.